From the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Craig Sauer, Senior Editor for CUNA's Credit Union Magazine. Today's guest is Scott Stratton, a disruptive sales, marketing, and branding expert. Stratton is the president of On Marketing, the author of several best-selling books, and a former music industry marketer. He ran one of the most successful viral video agencies in the world for nearly a decade and is now an in-demand speaker. He'll deliver a keynote at the 2018 CUNA's Governmental Affairs Conference. Your company's name is Unmarketing. What is Unmarketing? Well, Unmarketing itself is simply when we see a, a logo, we see a company, we, we, what do we think? You know, uh, unmarketing and unbranding and unselling are all under the same umbrella, which is the brand's identity is not kept by the company itself. It's kept by your customers and by the public. And what they think matters and what we think really matters a lot less. And the problem is we thought for, for centuries it was the other way around. And the unmarketing is what we talk about. You know, it's the stories we tell. It's the things we share. So we don't, as a public, we don't share brochures. We don't share logos or press releases. We share our stories. So if it's, as an example, the unmarketing of a of a credit union uh, location is how the members talk to other people about it. Um, it's not, again, the collateral material necessarily or the signage. It's well, are you are you happy? Are you happy you've joined? Are you happy you're there? And um, versus the alternatives, that's what our marketing really comes down to. Do you think a lot of businesses are somewhat oblivious to what their brand actually is to their customers? Oh yeah, oh a hundred percent oblivious to what they think of because they don't ask them. You know, they if if we do ask them a question, let's say I come into your location and uh, as people ask at the end, you know, how is your service? You'll you'll usually hear in response to the F word. You'll hear, which is the most dangerous word in the credit union industry, which is the word "fine." You know, how is everything fine? You know, it's the, like that's that's the word we're given by my teenagers when I ask how school was. They say it's fine. I'm like, now you're on, you're on drugs because you're just giving me this. You're giving me this the the answer to end the questions, and we don't need members who are fine. We need them ecstatic. We need them like this is the best choice they could have made. And one of the reasons why there's a disconnect, too, is that a lot of times the front line, who are the most powerful marketers in the company, uh, don't also feel empowered to realize they change the brand, that they are the ones that create the stories, and um, therefore they don't have the pulse of that customer base or member base, really. What's your advice for figuring out what your customers really think? I, you know, it, it, it's it's amazing. It it it, ser- it seriously lacks a PhD to ask this, but it's it, it's asking them. It's whether it's doing a survey and whether it's doing you know when you see our logo and you show them the logo and have them answer what what three words come to mind. That's a great indication of because they could say or three things come to mind. You could say uh, you know friendly staff. Uh, long call wait times and uh, average interest rate, whatever that's going to be. It's certainly not going to be the three phrases that are uh, posted on the wall. 
you know, up at the location where integrity and serving members and, uh, you know, whatever that it's going to be is not usually going to be the same words. And that's where the comparison happens. Where's the disconnect between our brand statement and our member statement? And that's asking them. That could be over an email. That could be a general email and giving them a link to just make it very simple. But really, one of the tools that I've always asked uh, companies to use is, is stop, start, continue. You know, asking your members, what should we stop doing? What should we start doing? And what should we continue doing to ensure that we are your credit union for the rest of your life? It's this this thing of of uh, not realizing the power of that front line. You know, if you want to increase the bottom line, you increase the, you improve the front line. And I don't mean by hiring new people. I mean by by empowering them, by making them realize they do have an effect. There's a cause there, a cause and effect of how they are with people that come into the location. Does that mean the marketing department should have a closer relationship with the front line, or even empower them as sort of marketers? Well, I, no, I don't necessarily mean the mark. I think marketing in the whole in, in the credit union industry does a great job with outbound marketing. That's their job. You know, marketing in the classical sense, being from somebody who is from that world, is your job is to get the message out there. A job of a credit union marketing is, is creating awareness. You know, that the one that the industry exists, two that the locations exist within a regional uh, constraint in a marketplace. You know, awareness side of things, but the the post-marketing, the post-I've-signed-on, I'm now a member, wrong part of the marketing. The, the problem is it doesn't cost a lot of money. It just takes a long time. And that's where marketing has no business being part of that anyways, unless it's gathering those stories. And that's the one thing that marketing can do is how do we highlight the, the people who work with us and for us? What are their stories? And that's a nice way that marketing can combine the front line with themselves. But I don't know if it's up to marketing to make them feel empowered. I think it's up to management. It's up to management to make that front line feel empowered enough that they can change the 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 vibe of the brand um, um, and, the, and the vibe of the visit. I'll give you an example. Um, I, and I, I, I apologize because it's from the, the banking world, but uh, it's one I know. And uh, I walk into one branch of my bank here and I'm, I walk in like I'm Norm from Cheers. You know, I walk in and everybody's like, hey! And they all get to know, they're all excited to see me. Even with the high turnover of tellers at the the front desk, they're still happy to see me. The manager comes out to say, hey, it might be because who I am. I have a big mouth and stuff, but I, I but it makes me feel great. And then I have a location, which is actually closer to my home, because we moved a few blocks away, and I went to it last week to deposit a check, and it was like I was an interruption to them. And then when I was doing my, I was depositing a check, um, the teller in front of me was, she was on her phone. And the phone was kind of hidden a bit under the desk, but you know when somebody's on their phone. They're not, they're not looking that intently to an, at an eraser. You know, they're, 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 I'm just not their priority. And that was a, kind of a jarring thing. And that, that so now that's the brand to me. It's a brand where one location, loves me and one couldn't care less. And that's where I think that we can separate ourselves in the credit union world is is the people and what they do and how they act. And do I feel like a member? Do I feel like part of the family? Or is part of the family just a slogan they use in an advertising campaign? When you're a credit union with branches across a wide area, how do you ensure your brand is what you want your brand to be across those multiple locations? Well, that's the thing is once the problem is sometimes it is consistency. Any multi-location business has a problem with the service consistency. Like you might be able to set, 
you know, you'll get the same interest rate if you deposit something at one location you do the other. You have the same fees at one that you do the other, but it's the service that's not consistent. And that's really what I think separates it, where I know you pick a retail store. Anytime I walk into Lush, the soap store, I usually expect to be blown away by their service. They're just great people. And it's happened every single location I've walked into. That's what you want. You The high level of service consistently across the board is important because you're only as good as that weakest one. And that becomes a jarring experience. And I find it a lot is not always necessarily the difference between locations, but the difference between platforms. So online, I'm attentive and Twitter, I jump in and I'm more than happy to help you. And then I walk into a location and they're not so keen to help me. And then there's a, that's a jarring thing when it comes to a brand experience. Right now, credit unions are experiencing this proliferation of service channels from online banking, mobile banking, et cetera. Uh, what do credit unions need to think about in terms of ensuring a common experience? Well, I think technology is great till it's not. And, uh, you know, we all love it until it screws up. And one of the problems is technology is under a extremely higher power microscope to people because it's dealing with their money. And therefore, if that screws up, that's just exponentially bad compared to um, a cash register not working properly at Whole Foods for a minute. You know, this is my money. And uh, uh, so it's almost like always aware that any kind of tech that comes into the business has to be as tested and, and true and, and, and fail-safe as um, opening a new location. But it affects people on a larger scale. So I just I don't think technology is good for the sake of using technology. I want it to help our members. I want it to make their day-to-day transactions better, their experience with us better. If it doesn't heighten the experience, then what are we doing it for? Like I... I remember getting a letter from a bank that said, um, we are now offering to waive the paperless fee if you if you go paperless for your financial statements. And uh, so I'm sitting there saying, hang on a second, you're willing to waive a fee for me to save you money? Like, I don't want these to be mailed anymore. So you're, you're honoring me by allowing me not to pay $5 a month to not have my statement sent to me. Like we almost try to do things and word things that they're in the best interest of our customers when in reality they're in the best interest of us. When I've seen you speak to credit union audiences in the past, uh, I've seen you emphasize three words, authenticity, transparency, and immediacy. Wh- why are those three words important to your marketing philosophy? Yeah, it's it's funny. The uh, authenticity has sadly become kind of a a buzzword, like it's a strategy. And it fascinates me because, to me, you're either authentic or you're not. And authenticity uh, is more of a verb than anything else. It's what we do. And um, is it is are we true to what we say we are? And that's through actions. So it's like when you call up your financial institution and and you're you're put on hold, and it says you're. We're experiencing unusually high call volumes, and yet that message has been the same for seven years. You know, when does when does the unusually high call volume just turn into the usual high call volume that we haven't prepared for? Or we're not willing to spend the resources to make you actually, you know, the the most ironic statement on a on hold message is your business is important to us. I mean, well, if it was, then. I wouldn't be on hold for 22 minutes. And uh, so that's it's what we do now. We say we do. Um, transparency, obviously, some some industries, it's forced <laughs> by law to, to be transparent. And um, 
but we've seen, you know, when recently when it comes out, uh, as an example, one of the most extreme examples out there in any business is, is Wells Fargo and on how they everything they said was about the customer and the clients. And, the, and, and um, it turns out, you know, we're, we're signing people up for fake accounts to hit sales quotas. And, um, and that's, you know, no matter what they say or do, that's forever attached to them. Um, and immediacy is really one of the forgotten, the forgotten kind of third pillar of customer focus or, or member focus, which is that uh, the speed at which we respond to something is almost paramount to what we respond with. And so if somebody has a problem with their account or something's happened with their money, they're already at an extremely high elevated sense of stress. And how we handle that in the moment is as huge um, kind of pays dividends to it depending on how we handle it. So if it's, we have a, let's say we have a voicemail from a, a member and it's 4 p.m. on a Friday and we decide, you know what, I'm kind of mailing it in from 3 p.m. on and, you know, because it's the weekend. Well, whatever our resolution is on the Monday now has to be exponentially higher than it was on the Friday because of the length of time we've taken to respond to it. And even if you're responding with, um, you know, I'm sorry this has happened and I, I will do everything in my control to make this better for you or, or correct it for you, then um, that's better than no response. And since we have so many channels these days to communicate in, um, the expectation of, of reply is uh, quite quick. You know, the studies have shown that people expect a reply to a tweet or a Facebook message um, almost as quickly as uh, answering a phone call. And so if we set up those channels, we have to ensure that we can fulfill that immediacy side of things, that we don't open a channel for the sake of opening a channel. We don't have an Instagram account that we don't check our private messages on. I'm not sure why a credit union would have an Instagram account, but if they did, you understand that you've just opened up a new communication channel. And we just can't open those without the resources. You know, I'd rather be in one or two places that my members want to use to communicate and I do it efficiently and effectively than be on six of them and not answer them well. So how does this come into play when you're talking about younger generations? Uh, are those three things even more important? Well, it's, it's yes and no, but I, I think sometimes we default to saying younger is tech and they have a lower, quicker, lower attention span and they're more demanding when in reality, it's not really the case that um, they, uh, we've, it's shown that the most demanding consumer is an, a consumer that is over 50 because they have a legacy or there's a loyalty or a, a history. Then we expect it. You know, they're, they're the ones that can say, I've been with you for 25 years and you should be giving me this. And, you know, we spend so much of our time trying to attract new members that we we sometimes let the current members slide to the side. And, you know, all the promotions I've ever seen in any kind of credit union or banking is all about the new customer. You know, open an account and get a TV, open this and get that. And let's attract millennials. And like, well, what about your what about your, your Gen Xers and your boomers and the ones who are current members, the ones who have referred people to you that um, it's not always pushing the other way. And, and one of the problems of trying to look new and hip and savvy with everything is it alienates your current members somewhat to say, you're behind, you're, you're slow, and we're not interested in you. And I don't think it's young people that are demanding these new tech avenues as it is humans in general. 
Like my mom texts me, she used her banking app and she's 72. Like no age is immune to wanting convenience or uh, age range that wants good service. Everybody does. Sure, it's more important to get a long, younger generation or let's say millennials or, or the next coming, which I don't even know what we're calling them now. But but if we get them young, obviously it makes business sense. The younger we, we get them, the longer lifespan we have of that member. But we can't sacrifice, you know, current standards and quality for the members we've had for a long time to get new ones. And the problem is we have this, there's a difference between static members and ecstatic members. The ecstatic ones are the ones that refer new ones and are happy as a clam to to give you their business and the static ones are just there. They have an account. They haven't given it. They haven't been treated poorly enough to change, but they haven't been treated great enough to want to send other people there. And that's actually the danger zone. It's not the vulnerable ones that are leaving. They're leaving anyways. They're going to leave for a new TV because TD offered them one or whatever. And it's not the it's not the ecstatic ones. They're the ones doing their their the referrals. It's the middle, and that's where most people land. It's the middle. I. I Sometimes the best way to get new members or even younger members is to treat the current ones as, as best as possible. Because what do kids look at? Um, and you know, when we say millennials, even that, that's actually 18 to 35 year olds. And so your, your 22 year old is totally influenced differently necessarily than a 34 year old or a 15 year old is maybe going to where his or her parents do their banking. Um, and, so it's different. You, know, you just can't slap a whole generation and say, well, this is how we're going to go after them. It's You can't do that for anybody. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and, and kind of how you developed your marketing philosophies over the course of your career? Yeah. Um, so let's see. I've been on marketing itself as a company has been around for about 16 years or so. And uh, actually, you know, most things I learned originally, I learned from being in the music business in Toronto, I was a, I managed a bunch of unknown bands, which is why I'm not doing it now. But I, I learned so much through, I learned so much through, you know, having no budget, you know, that starving artists is, is a real thing. And when you have no budget to promote, you got to, you know, you got to come up with things. You got to be innovative. You got to, so we, we would collect email addresses at the door and this is 16 17, 18, well, now 20 years ago for the managing. So this is, not everybody had an email address. Um, but we knew being able to contact, to reach out to them, to build that list was always important. And I took a lot of that. Instead of postering and slapping signs up on light posts and posters that nobody ever looked at, we, we went after our current audience and made them fanatics out of fans and, and allowed them to be our kind of our street team, as we called it. And they helped promote our shows after that. You, you you made them feel special. And everybody wants to feel important. Everybody wants to feel like they're the only person. So we took that and kind of ran with it. And then I opened up um, kind of my viral video agency. And for about six, seven years, we were the most successful viral video company in the world. And uh, we did 60 different client videos. And if you ever saw back in the old days, the, 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 they were like animated slideshows. So they were like a picture with animated text and cheesy music, like the Dash movie and the Time movie. And if you'd seen any of those, that for the most part, that was us. We made those. And they did very well. And um, they really blew up. And 
uh, until the recession hit. And then the market was not exactly um, hungry for uh, overpriced slideshows. So uh, the market did dry it up. And, uh, but I'd, I've always been about community. Um, I've always been about connecting in person and virtually. And so in 2008, 2009, I just decided to dive in headfirst with um, social media and Twitter. And I decided to live on Twitter for 30 days um, in uh, January 2009. And I, I said, I'm going to give it a month. And if I see something that uh, is working, then I'll stick around. And if it doesn't, well, then I can try it. I didn't like the marketing people who gave opinions on things that hadn't tried it. So I said, oh, I got I to gotta use it to be able to talk about it. And I tweeted 7,000 times in that month. And... Uh, yeah, I got 10,000 followers because of it. And kind of like the rest is history. It it blew up. And um, so Wiley, the publisher Wiley, my editor, who's still our editor today, Shannon, um, emailed me and said, why haven't you written a book yet? And I said, why haven't you offered me a book deal yet? And she said, touche. And because I came up with the name Unmarketing originally 16, 17 years ago, because I thought it would look good on a book cover. And uh, so then I started writing on marketing and uh, it turns out um, on Twitter, I also met Allison, who is now the partner in the business, the co-author of the books and my wife, lucky for me. And I was writing the book and I just kind of hit a wall with it and she kind of took it over and made it even better. And, you know, that's why we wrote, we've now written five books together and on branding is the latest one that just came out and it just won the sales and marketing book of the year from CEO Reed. And that's our second time we've won that. And um, it's pretty mind blowing. So when the, when on marketing came out, I tweeted out June in June, 2010, I sent a tweet and said, who wants me to come to their city on the unbook tour? And the reason I called it an unbook tour, other than it, other than it fit with the brand was I didn't want to do a book tour. I didn't want to sit in bookstores and have nobody come up to me and be, it would be awkward and people would ask me where the bathroom is or where, where Harry Potter was. And so I decided to do a speaking tour and I was going to go speak and to support the launch of the book. And I put one tweet out and 30 cities ended up signing up. And that's why I did a 30 city, 10 week book tour. And, uh, I haven't, I literally haven't stopped uh, speaking since. We were talking about authenticity before, and I'm just kind of curious. Um, how how do you think about how do you think about authenticity in terms of how you present yourself on stage? It's funny because people say, "Well, you know, you've got this brand, Scott. You wear jeans and you don't wear a suit, and you have the beard and the tattoos and the man bun." And I'm like, I did none of those things to get keynotes. This is what I wear. Um, uh, now, mind you, if getting more tattoos would get me more keynotes, I'd do it. But um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's me. And this is the thing for me is it's, it's not a, a ploy. It's not a brand thing. It's me. This is what I wear. And um, the only reason I wear a collared kind of polo shirt on stage is because it, the mic, the lav mic needs to clip onto something. So you need that collar. And I wear jeans because they're comfortable. I don't wear a suit jacket because my I flail my arms around. I wear a black shirt so sweat doesn't you can't see sweat from the stage. Like it's all, it's the uncoolest reason to wear these clothing. You know, I used to wear Doc Martens because they are orthopedically correct for my back. Like it was just, it, people think I've come up with this thing. And then, uh, and the answer is no, it's me. And, and mind you, not wearing a suit on stage, not conforming to some of those things is a privilege. 
if I was getting no keynote talks, if I wasn't getting booked, then I would wear a tuxedo. Like I would do anything because uh, to make a living. So me just saying, ah, just be yourself and be authentic. And, you know, it is partial malarkey because it's a privilege because I'm busy because I do 60 a year and because it's what the number I want and I can do this. But if I wasn't, the phone wasn't ringing, I'd do what it took to get there to, to make a living. So, um, I try to be as authenticity for me though is not pretending to be somebody else on stage. So how I talk to you right now, how I talk on stage, how I talk in social media, and how I talk just one to one with people, um, I, I think should be the same. I have the same passion off the stage as I do on it. I'm not as loud sometimes off the stage as, as I need to be, but that's more just reaching the whole audience. But I think what I say, and I, I say what I think, and that's the same off as it is on. And I think that's important because in my business, there's a lot of that that's not like that. The people who are on stage are totally different than they are off stage. And I, I think there's a con- congruency problem with that. I think there's an authenticity problem. And so if the, if the event planner and the meeting professional running the event deals with me and I'm a total diva off stage and a pain to deal with, but then I'm on stage preaching about it's, a, it's about the customer, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's contradictory to each other that you can't. My customer is the event. My customer is the event person. And if I don't treat them well, I can't go on stage and say, treat your customer well. The meeting planner will be at the back of the room saying, yeah, no, you know, you don't, you don't do that. And I have the best job in the world. You know, I, I get to go yell at people for 45 minutes to an hour, you know, and then I go home and people clap. Like, who who else gets applause? Outside of athletes and rock stars, not many people get applause for what they do every time. And once in a while, they stand up and clap. Like, it's just, it's so good. How can I not love it and do it, you know, in an authentic way for me? I, I think the problem in my business is when people try to act like other people. And they think, well, that's successful. Scott can wear jeans or yell. It's not the way it works. For young people who are just getting started in marketing today, do you have any advice for them on how to approach their career? Yeah, I, I think that... um one of the things I like to say today is about insubordination leads to innovation. And and that can be insubordination in your own mind, in your brain, and contradicting what you've been taught. Um, and sometimes it's contradicting what somebody says in the workplace. Now, you got to do it with tact. You can't just be insubordinate you know, somebody and tell them they're an idiot or something. But I just think that there's a reason why most innovation in industries comes from outside of the industry is because that we don't allow it to happen inside. And I've always questioned why. I've never lost that curiosity. Not why as, I'm, as, as in I'm questioning you and your intelligence, but well, why? You know, why, should, why is this way better? Why should we do it this way? And that's a delicate thing to do, especially when you're young. You know, you come into the workplace and you start questioning things. You're not going to not going to go well for you usually. But I think my, my message more is to those managers and the leaders and credit unions is to allow that to come out, allow that not only saying you have an open door policy, but having one and saying, look, every idea comes out to help us is a good thing. And the problem is politics get in the way and pecking orders and people have to stay in their lane. And um, I just don't like staying in my lane. I like to, you know, I think that we're here, we bring different things to the table and when we try to get everybody to conform to get in line, then we lose that variety of ideas and a variety of influences and experiences. And I, I think that if I would go back and when I was younger, um, maybe uh, um, I, I don't get lazy. I got lazy. 
when I had the viral video company and just, it was just coming in, I had a very high margin product where I just wasn't doing any of the work pretty much. And it was great. I just, lay, I just sat there. I just played Xbox. You know, like I literally, I think I am a Halo. I am killer at Halo 3. Like I am, I ranked high online. And, um, I just got lazy and I, I stopped learning. I stopped marketing myself. And uh, when the recession hit, I was done. I had zero. I almost filed for bankruptcy. And that's because I got lazy. And the only champion of you is you. And that means, you know, the day you stop, the day you think you you need you can stop learning because you know everything is the day you really do stop growing. Um, so always seeking out new things. Like I, I have an insatiable appetite now for things out there in the digital marketing world and the marketing world and the brand world. And I never stop reading it. I, I make a joke that uh, I tell people that I'm unemployed because I don't work uh, for 16 years now. I've been unemployed. It's great. And Allison gets kind of ticked at me saying, you, you know, you never stop working. You never stop reading and experiencing. And, and I'm like, but it's not work to me. You know, I love it. And that's really the, the goal is to have something that you're so passionate about. It doesn't feel like work. Um, and that's important. You're going to be speaking to about 5,000 credit union leaders at CUNA's mm -hmm. Governmental Affairs Conference. What do you want people to take away from your speech? That millennials ruin everything. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just totally kidding. Um, no, that, that, that's the opposite of it. I think one of the things with leaders is, I, I, I believe that leaders is not a title that it can be self-given. I think leaders is, is, is an action that people, people follow leaders by choice. People have to listen to managers, managers with the management, the title, but I think you can't, leader shouldn't be on a business card. Leader shouldn't be self-titled. It shouldn't be in your LinkedIn profile. It, it's, do people follow what I do out of their own choice? That's a leader. And, uh, I think leaders is, is so much, it's like a parent, right? You, you, People they learn people learn more by action than anything else and what you do you know and um, they always the line is so true and it's been said so many times that people leave they don't leave companies they leave people right and they leave managers they leave they leave leaders or lack thereof and that's important I think that being a leader in this industry in an industry that has so many potential growth areas and so much great when they're so community oriented that, you know, the, the industry should, should sell itself sometimes to new recruits and people coming into the business. And um, sometimes we don't do the best job of that and getting that word out there necessarily. And um, I think that when sometimes we put the blame because we blame millennials, we literally blame them. Like, it's just like anything that goes wrong with our, our world. We just like, we blame millennials. Like it's right, right here. It's snowing right now. And I'm, you know, somebody's, somebody's sitting there somewhere saying, oh, millennials. <laughs> you know, it's just, any problem we have with the world, it's their fault. And and I hate to break it to you, but when I was 17 or 18, it was our fault. You know, it was Gen X's fault. We were the millennials back then. And every generation has hated the younger generation And from, from the dawn of time. We have quotes from Socrates that talk about the the disenfranchised youth of today. And so it's, it's, never, it's never good enough. And I just think that we have to respect that. Just because people are young does not mean they're not valuable. And on the flip side, a younger generation also thinks just because somebody's older does not mean they're washed up or they don't know technology or they don't know innovation. Um, I just think that if we treat each other as individuals versus demographics, then we can work with that. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. 
subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.